0: Well, good morning. morning. I like this. You guys are warmed up and ready to go. Not so sleepy like the last service. Don't tell him I said that. It's good to be with you today. Hey, my name is Alex. And if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open to Isaiah 58? We're gonna spend some time, quite a bit of time there this morning. I'm glad you guys are doing well. I'm glad you're awake. (laughs) I'm glad you're alive and you've brought yourself here to this space. Thank you for prioritizing it. I think it's important. As Pastor Bo was leading us um, today through a time of prayer for Israel, I I was reminded of a song that sort of defined an era and specifically an era of my own youth. Uh, Switchfoot once sang the song, we were meant to live for so much more. Seth, I know you know that song. You know that song. And I was thinking about the lyrics of that song, we were meant to live for so much more. I think deep down inside each human being is an aching, a longing for a life that was meant for more than what we are experiencing. More than the wars of our fathers, right? More than what this life has to offer. Deep inside of us is an aching to live a life that has meaning and purpose. God put that in you, in each and every one of you. We live in a culture that wants to say there's meaning found in this, 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 or this. But you know the story. Anytime you live into any of those narratives, you follow them for a certain period of time, you come to the end of them and find out what? That they're empty. And again, that deep ache inside of your soul that you were meant for more arises. Isaiah 58, really the entire book of Isaiah, is a prophecy, it's a word of God spoken to the people of God, declaring that they were meant to live for more, more than what they were experiencing. Pastor Bo and Pastor Jamie over the last few weeks have done an amazing job sort of unpacking the context and the culture. One of the things that we have learned is that the people of God are living a dead and empty religion. They are going through the motions, sitting in the pews, even fasting, going through the rituals, and yet it is empty or void of the heart of God. What God desires for his people in Isaiah 58, what God desires for you and for me today is to live a life in which he intended to discover purpose once again. God sends this prophet to show them that there is more to live for. There is a greater kingdom to be a part of. But also to warn them. To warn them that if they keep going down the path that they are going, it will end in destruction and chaos. One of the things that we, come, um, we are confronted with when we read prophets like Isaiah is this idea of the wrath of God. God. Like, oh great, the preacher's gonna give me the wrath of God. I didn't, I'm not on a street corner, right? We need to understand what does that term even mean? We find it through the pages of scripture and really quickly and easily we can misunderstand the heart of God when we read about the wrath of God. What is it? Well, Romans 1 says the, heart, the wrath of God is this, when you get what you want. The wrath of God is when you get what you want. When the things or the people or the the, the status or the prestige that you have been longing for comes to you, and almost always it's more than what you bargained for. God is patient, gracious, kind, long-suffering, right? He continually tells us that road will lead to death, not life over and over again when finally he allows you to have what you want and he says not my will for your life but your will be done. And every single time that happens it is bad news for us. And so the prophet shows up to tell the people of God you have got to get off of this train. It is headed towards destruction and chaos and death and God is inviting you to a life that is truly life. Not just for you to experience, but get this, to experience a purpose in which you can then therefore go into the world and tell them there is a greater way of being human. This is after all the vocation or the calling of the people of God from cover to cover through the Bible is to tell the world that there is a God in heaven who loves them and there is a better way to do this whole thing. This is the invitation of of Israel is to be a light to the nations, to be an inspiration to them, to show them that their path leads to death. But Yahweh, creator of the heavens and the earth, invites us to a greater and better story. You indeed were meant to live for so much more. The thing is, is as you and I get to experience that life, This is the beautiful thing is that you get to be then, therefore, a blessing to the world around you. This goes way back to Abraham. You remember Father Abraham had many sons and daughters, but many sons and daughters had Father Abraham, right? You, You know the song. You know the story. There was an unconditional promise of God that he would bless him for his life of faith and that, therefore, that blessing would be a blessing to the entire world around them. This is the promise of God on our life. And when we walk with him, his power and his presence works in you, through you, and then ultimately for the good of those around you. We're calling this series Dwell. And it hinges on verse 12 of Isaiah 58. You can look at it in your Bibles or you can look at it on the screen. It says this, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called a repairer of broken walls and a restorer of streets with dwellings." Dwellings, that's where we got it from, dwell. <laughs> Get it? What is a place you dwell? Well, in its ideal state, the place you dwell is home. It's home. My message today is titled, Home. Home is supposed to be the place where you are most you, where you are most comfortable, most safe. And so in a metaphorical sense, home can be your life in God. You were created for that deep ache and longing inside of your soul is to be at home with God, to be in a life with God. C.S. Lewis in the last battle, the seventh book of the Chronicles of Narnia wrote this. I have come home at last. This is my real country and I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up, further in. Not to ruin the end of the story, but... What happens at the end of the last battle is all of these faithful Narnians die and yet in a blink of an eye, they are awakened by resurrection and they enter into the new creation of God where God dwells with his people. There is no sin or separation. And all of a sudden, this thing comes alive in each of them. And they recognize that, that there was an ache in their soul all the days of their life. And nothing in this world could fully satisfy that ache. And then all of a sudden, in a twinkle of an eye, in a blink, there they are in the very presence of God. And this is the home that I always longed for. Church, there is a home inside of your soul that can be only found in God. And we, as the people of God today, filled with the spirit of God, get to live in that reality and anticipate the day when it will one day fully be made known. And that is good news, amen? So the home you were created for, it is a life with God where your identity is restored, where you are the safest you can possibly be, fully known by him, fully loved and accepted by him and healed by him. But get this, the metaphor can work in multiple ways here. Home is also your purpose. If your purpose or destiny is to be with God, simultaneously what Isaiah is saying is not only do you get to be with God and all of the benefits that are there, but you get to be a what? Repairer of streets with dwelling. You get to actually partner with God in the work of healing this broken world. Bo talked about that week one, the mission of God. He desires to work through you to create home for others. It's only there where you will discover your true created purpose in this life. Only with God will you discover that. Now, My wife, Alan, and I, early on in our marriage, we moved into downtown Portland, and we had this vision of revival in the city of downtown Portland. Maybe we were naive, because it looks like we're going the wrong direction. Am I right? But I remember sitting there and believing deep inside of my soul and experiencing the transformation, the work of the Spirit in my life. I was becoming a new person. I was being renewed and transformed. And yet simultaneously, I was wondering why my renewal and transformation wasn't changing the city. <laughs> I was really struggled with that. Like why, why is this, this thing seemed to be going in opposite directions, the work of God in my life and the state of the city. And I really started wrestling with this idea and then I picked up a book. It was by a guy who actually lived in the same neighborhood that we were living in, and he was a follower of Jesus. And he had been wrestling with the same questions as me. And uh, the book is titled, Faith in Real Life. <laughs> Go figure, simple titles, that's what we do. Christians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? We, we come on, that's a funny joke. Simple, simple here. <laughs> I started thinking about like, how does my private faith, my relationship with Jesus, impact the public good. I recognize that I I can't just march around the streets and force people to believe what I believe. You can't legislate heart change, amen? Okay, let me try that again. You can't legislate a change of hearts, amen? Thank you, I'm glad we're on the same page. If you look through the pages of history, that has never worked. And yet, history also confirms that the gospel of Jesus has changed this world for the better. So the question is, how do we live into this story? How do we do this? Well, Isaiah 58, that's what it's all about. How your faith and your relationship with Jesus changes you to be a blessing to the world around you. Remember the words of James, your faith without works is what? it's dead. (laughs) John Golden Gay, a theologian and wrote a commentary on Isaiah 58 said this, in Isaiah 58, there was a mismatch between people's spiritual practice and the rest of their lives. In the Bible, spiritual practices or following the guidance of the spirit involves the kind of action the prophets talk about action. That is the key word there. So last week, um, Pastor Jamie introduced this section of Isaiah 58, verse 6. And verse 6 and verse 7 are intended to be read and understood together, but they are different in their messages. Um, But again, we're going to start by just doing a quick recap on verse 6. If you go there in your Bible, verse 6 says this. "Is Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. Now remember, Isaiah is speaking to a people. (laughs) Now there's absolutely a personal and individual way we respond to a passage like this. But it is also written to an entire kingdom. So there is a we response as much as there is a me response to a passage. And that is the tension that we must hold throughout this whole message. But since it's not just written to individuals, but it is written to an entire group of people, and it is speaking specifically to the injustices that are happening amongst the group of people, one of the things that we have to come face to face with is the reality of something called systemic injustice. And that is where I'm going to lose many of you, (laughs) potentially. I recognize that even bringing up terms like systemic injustice or societal evil, right away we are conditioned to respond largely based upon the politics of our day and even some of the Christian teaching of our day. Instantly we react and respond. And all I want to say is, will you just for a moment suspend your judgment of what I'm about to say? and allow the scriptures to speak to you. Please hang in there with me. Now, how many of you like Monopoly? Any of you? I love Monopoly. It's one of my favorite games, probably because it's slow and I am as well. (laughs) I really, really, really enjoy the game of Monopoly. Now, there was a study done at UC Berkeley and um, in this study they wanted to see what would happen if they gave an unfair advantage to player A in monopoly versus player B you can ted talk this you can look it up it's a think tank that is studying economic inequality and its impact on people now this is a fascinating study over 100 people it was blind people didn't know what was going on there was like hidden cameras in the room And what they did is they flipped a coin, and if you got heads, then you are going to get two dice to roll, twice the amount of money as the other person, and every time you pass go, you were going to get 200 bucks, Uh, Monopoly bucks, that's what it is. Whereas the other person, you get tails, tails fails in this regards, but you got one dice, half the amount of money, and only 100 Monopoly bucks when you pass go. Now, obviously, from the very get-go, the rules are bent in the favor of the person who's getting more. Am I right? Anyone with me? Great. So this is what they discovered. Now, that was obvious, and they played the game out, and guess who won? The person with the advantage. (laughs) Of course they did. But what was interesting is not about who won and who lost. That's obvious. What was interesting is they started measuring the body language, the words, the attitude of the person who was winning. What was happening is every time they passed go, they started slamming you know, their piece across the board demonstratively. They started mocking the other person because they had more money than the other person. They started buying out all of their properties and flexing that they had them all on the board. There was even a bowl of pretzels on the table, and they took more pretzels than the other group. What does this illustrate? It illustrates an idea that perhaps there can be injustice in a system, a bent to give one person or a group of people an advantage over another. What it also illustrates is that humanity, we have a propensity to believe that if we benefit from that broken system, it's because we worked really hard and we deserved it. This is perhaps one of the primary issues that is facing the people of God in Isaiah 58. We already read about them. There's unjust situations where some people have the privilege to take a Sabbath while the other people have to work on it. There's all sorts of economic realities, political realities to this. And like I said, very quickly and easily, I can lose you because this disbelief that that's even possible. Now, I have been called all sorts of things. Um, Too liberal, too woke, too conservative. You can't win and you can't please everyone. And I honestly just don't care about those labels anymore. (laughs) You know that God gives us a label too? We are redeemed and unconditionally loved children of God. And no one can take that away from us. I care a lot about what the Bible actually says, and it happens to say a lot about systemic injustice and the dark powers that sit behind them. I could literally stand up here and rattle off hundreds of for instances through the Bible, but we don't have enough time for that today. But I want you just to consider that what I'm saying is trustworthy and to journey through this a bit with me. Now, in order for us to even begin to go down this path. You're skeptical, maybe you don't believe that what I am saying is biblical, I get it. Um, but say you wanna suspend your disbelief and your skepticism for a second. We have to be aware of the cultural conditioning that some of us are coming out of. And I think this comes from a few factors. One is an overemphasis on our personal spirituality combined with the neglect of discipleship around how our personal faith has profound and transformational power for the public good. Now, this is heightened in our Western, hyper-individualized culture, especially of those of us in the good old U.S. of A. Um, And this construct is dangerous because we believe that no broader system could hold somebody down, and as such, it's everyone's individual fault that they cannot lift themselves up by their bootstraps. Now, I understand this is an oversimplification, um, and, and, and we cannot neglect the teachings of the Bible There is a tension here that we must hold. There is such thing as systemic injustice and societal evil. And yet there is also this thing called personal responsibility. They do not have to cancel each other out. Let me give you a concrete example from my life. In 2012, I spent some time in Haiti. I was living in a concrete structure surrounded by a tent village. 300,000 people died in an earthquake in 2010 in Haiti. Many, many, many more people would die because of inadequate basic necessities and needs. Now, I was there a couple years after the earthquake and I was living amongst a tent village there and really wrestling with the question, God, why am I even here? But day in and day out, I would watch these standard of living, predominantly for these children that had nothing. They were born into it. They had no opportunity. And I would, they would watch family members and friends die day after day just because they couldn't get their basic necessities. But you know where they were? Globally, the world put $15.6 billion in aid, and they came in on giant container ships. I was in Carrefour, which is just right near the epicenter of the earthquake, and right in front of me, you could see Port-au-Prince, the little port, the bay, right there, filled with container ships, filled with aid that could not make it to the people that needed it because the dock workers required a bribe. Because a small group of people in power demanded more power, motivated by greed, this is systemic injustice. While people suffer day in and day out and their solution is right in front of them and they're reminded of it every single day because of greed and corruption, it could not enter in. I have never in my life been more angry wrestling with the question, God, what do we do with this? It feels insurmountable, it feels too big. And yet you've called us right into this space all at the same time. If Isaiah wrote a prophecy to Haiti, it would carry a double meeting, written to the individuals responsible for the injustice, but also written to the broader system at work that was allowing that sort of injustice to continue, both need to be engaged. So it's unbiblical to say there is no such thing as societal evil or systemic injustice. As it's also unbiblical to say we do not have personal responsibility. Both of these ideas must be held in tension. Another factor we need to consider is our underdeveloped understanding of spiritual evil. We tend to think of demons as these little red pointy guys that sit on our shoulders and tempt us to do bad things, right? And there definitely is sort of a in the Bible a sort of element of personal temptation and demons. But there's also these things called principalities and powers they are spiritual entities that don't just individually tempt you, but move entire societies and groups of people in directions. Paul says in Colossians that they are fallen, which means they are broken. And ironically, interestingly, he says that they are also redeemable. That's an interesting thing. But the reality is, is in their fallen state, they propagate fallen and broken systems. They influence groups, cultures, churches, and the like. And we, to not believe in them is to play into their hands, right? If they're not real, then you can never engage them. You can never unmask them. You can never show them for what they are. And if we're not discipled, we won't know how to engage them correctly. How to navigate this dark and broken world by be bringers of light and the good news. Many American civil rights leaders through our country's history understood this. They understood this by moving forward against injustice through nonviolent resistance. This same idea would be carried forward to end apartheid in South Africa. William Wilberforce would also empower the same sort of idea to end the transatlantic slave trade. You Lord of the Rings fans, anyone out here? You cannot destroy the ring by wielding its power you have to throw it in the fire, destroy it, right? Paul would say this in Romans, we cannot overcome evil with evil. We must overcome what? Evil with good. How do we engage challenges we face in our own context? How can we do what Isaiah says where we tear down these systems of injustice and oppression These are questions that Christians have been asking for the centuries. Within our own context, the questions people have been asking about slavery, Jim Crow, colonization, internment camps, redlining, poverty, border policies, immigration issues, the war on drugs, sexual identity crisis, mental health crisis, widening wealth gaps, constant violence in Israel, Palestine war. I know, I know, I've made every single one of you uncomfortable somehow. The truth of the matter is, is that we can't bury our heads in the sand on these issues. We can't also engage them the way the world invites us to engage them. There is a third way of Jesus and he invites us into this story. Now I'm a millennial and um, we're pretty good at this whole thing called deconstructing our faith. We we have the corner market on that. No other generation gets it. And uh, in a lot of ways, verse six is about deconstructing our faith, not just deconstructing the systems of injustice in the world, but deconstructing a faith that's dead and empty and doesn't do anything about the brokenness in our world. But one of the things my generation isn't particularly good at is reconstructing our faith. (laughs) I'm going to assume you're a millennial back there. Listen, I think our faith needs renovation, not demolition. I think we need renewal, not destruction. And what verse 7 is about is once we deconstruct this thing, how do we build it back up? What are the essential framework or foundation of a faith that is rebuilt and genuine? Well, Isaiah 58 verse 7 says this, Is not the fast that I have chosen, is it not to share your food with the hungry? In uh, August of 2020, my family moved into a neighborhood and within the first few months, there was a homeless encampment in my neighborhood. And I'm not gonna lie to any of you, I wasn't very fond about that. I was frustrated. I was like, why? We moved into this neighborhood for neighbors, maybe not those neighbors. <laughs> I was wrestling with this and thinking about all the reasons why I'm justified to feel the way that I felt. I have four children, my job is to protect them. The proximity of this homeless encampment made me afraid. Drugs and violence, all the stories that you hear on the news, all the headlines flooding into my mind and day by day this went on. The people who lived in this camp became less like people to me. They became an other to me. They became dangerous and I was filled with fear by their very presence. I had a conditioned response and it wasn't conditioned by Jesus. Oh, but through the mouth of babes, right? My oldest daughter also noticed this homeless encampment, but she did not have the same response that I had. As soon as she realized that they didn't have a warm home to live in, clothing, food, she went right into how can we help mode? Dad, they don't have socks. We can go get them socks. Dad, they don't have a meal. We should go get them a meal. I was confronted with the heart of God through my own child. And it was that moment that I realized that I had done the very thing that I preach not to do, which is to ether someone, to push them away. So finally I had a renewal and revival of my own sorts and I went with my daughter to go help them and guess what, they were nowhere to be found because the police had shown up and they had moved them away. I don't know where they went, I missed my opportunity with them. But, but here's the thing that's super interesting is what I also noticed is that as a society, we just kind of pushed the problem down the road someplace. We provided no solution to this. So I had an individual opportunity to be like Jesus, to move close to people that are different than me, that have a different experience, a different story, and show them the love and unconditional care of Jesus but also, I had this awakening, this reality that we are not collectively doing enough to solve these issues. I am called into, we are called into both spaces. Also, millennial, had a what would Jesus do bracelet. Anyone else in this room? They're making a comeback, thank you, Z, uh, Gen Z. Jay-Z, <laughs> maybe Jay-Z too, I don't know. <laughs> Empire state of mind around here. Uh, Man, you ask the question like, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in my neighborhood? And that's a really important question to ask yourself, because if your answer is different than what you would do, we're in trouble. (laughs) It's time for an awakening. And this is how this message is messing with me. But listen, if we're going to have any moral authority or say in this world, it is only going to come from us following Jesus and doing what Jesus did. Paul said this, follow me as I follow Christ. As I follow Christ. Listen, if we want people to be influenced by the way of Jesus, we better be influenced by the way of Jesus, amen? Verse 7 Amen. Verse seven continues, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them. If the first part of verse seven is about the state of our heart changing to be like Jesus, the second part is the state of our work. Like what talents, resources, gifts, abilities, time, money do you have? What has God given you? Right here, it's very practical. They wanna provide shelter for people who don't have it. They wanna provide clothing for people that don't have it. Now, by no means is this narrow application only. We only build shelters and we only provide clothing. It is beyond that. It is recognizing that God is giving you what you have, not as an owner, but as a steward. Do you understand the difference? You are a manager of everything you have in your life and him as the Lord of your life gets to tell you what to do with it. And that is good news because we don't make a very good boss of our own lives. And here he invites us through the prophet Isaiah, through the work of our own hands to help change the systems and society, the brokenness in this world in partnership with him. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus is when he did this stuff, he was always under the radar. <laughs> more, more often than not, Jesus would say things like, don't tell anybody what I just did. And of course, no one would listen. They'd be like, oh, every, everyone, you know? I was talking to somebody who works in city planning a different city, and he said this, whenever we talk about helping those in need, particularly the homeless community, um, people go from zero, zero to hysterical in a split second, Right? So he, what he does is, I'm probably exposing him at this point, but he always tries to fly under the radar to bring the help that he needs. And this man isn't really a follower of Jesus, but you know what he said? My biggest opposition to helping those in need are conservative Christians. And that just killed my heart because that is not the heart of Jesus. Anyways, we here at the church, we have these things called For the City Initiatives. And, um, Pastor Mark just got back from an amazing trip in Burundi and in Nigeria. He was all over Africa. But there was a particular story he talked about from Basagi Burundi. And there's this partnership where we work with people all over the world in establishing local churches. And it's through those local churches that they offer clean water. And we came to this city and we learned that there's over 100,000 people affected by their lack of access to clean water. And as we engaged in that process, we learned what it would take to rehabilitate the system. And church, we will. You will. By your generous giving, some of you are like geotechnical engineers in this room and you're going there and helping establish, you will be a part of establishing a clean water source through a local church on the other side of the world for over 100,000 people. Amen to that. This is just one example of many that I could share of what Isaiah, doing what Isaiah 58, seven tells us to do, to reconstruct systems of injustice with justice and righteousness. Now, verse seven ends this way, do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Selfishness is a fascinating reality. Um, here in the text, it seems as if the people of God themselves returning away from their own in need. Now, I told you the story about the homeless encampment, and I want to revisit that for a second as we kind of begin to land the plane here, hopefully. <laughs> but what I did to the people living in this encampment was I made them an ether. I put distance between us. I didn't see them as an image-bearer of the God of heaven. I didn't see them as my brothers and my sisters. I saw them as a problem that needed to be dealt with to my own shame. I turned away from my own flesh and blood. Brothers and sisters created in the image of God. The prophet here is saying that what, this is what selfishness does. So what's the cure? How do we get out of that? I'm glad you asked. Jesus says it's radical generosity radical generosity. Again, it starts with something I said earlier, that you're not the owner of what you have. You are a steward of what you have, which means that the needs that are in this world, God has asked you to partner with him to help meet those needs. There's a few of you who could get together and you could write a check for 100,000 people and fix the water system there, but we need more than that. God is desiring to bring engineers and coders and communicators and all sorts of people together to meet the needs all around the world. Remember what I said earlier, you have a purpose in this story. Your life actually matters. Isaiah 58 reminds us of that once again. Not just to have a religious experience with God, but to allow your faith to be used to transform the world around you. Ultimately, all of this comes down to one thing. Will you trust Jesus to be the Lord of your life? That's what it boils down to ultimately. To believe that he really is the owner, the boss. (laughs) He's the one that gets to tell us what is good and true and right and not us. That's what it means to be the Lord of your life. Will you trust him? When the work of doing justice is hard, and by the way, it is hard, it will cost you. Will you trust him with the principalities and powers of darkness as they push against your efforts? Will you trust that he knows what is best for your life and for our world? Will you trust his purpose over your own? Will you give your entire life over to him? Pastor Casey um, wrote a song, and he's going to come out here in a minute, and he's going to lead us in this song. in essence. Um, It's about that question. Will you give all of your life, all of your resources to Jesus? And maybe this is the moment where you've made that decision for the first time. Welcome to the family. Or maybe you're in this moment and you're about to make it for the millionth time. (laughs) You're in good company. Or maybe you're coming back home You've walked away, you've wandered away of the plan and purpose of God in your life, and you know it, and he's inviting you right back home. Wherever you are, God invites you to come back home to him and to be a builder of streets with dwellings once again. So we're gonna create some space. Listen to the words that Casey wrote, the words of this song, let them minister to your heart, and may you respond to what Jesus says to you.
1: I am is yours, hold me, have hold me every breath. No mm-hmm. I surrender remember
0: says it better than I do, sings it better than I do. But this message was about coming home, back to God and back to his purpose for your life. And if you made that decision today, there's gonna be a group of people up here, elders in this community of faith that would love to pray with you. And listen, maybe... Maybe God spoke to you about how you are called to be a repairer, restorer of streets with dwellings, to build back homes, to work of justice and righteousness in this world. Stop by the Info Center, connect with Pastor Mark or Fabi. um, Hear about the many opportunities you can get engaged, get involved, get in the work. But I'd love to pray over you now. If you would like to receive a benediction, just go ahead and stand and open your hands. And I would love to pray over you. May you be a people who come home to the Father. May you be a repairer of streets with dwellings. May by the power of the Holy Spirit be transformed and be an agent of transformation to this broken world. May you partner with him in the work of tearing down the broken systems and engaging the powers of darkness. And may you be a people who build back with justice and righteousness by the name and the power of Jesus. Amen. 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 We sure love you guys. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week.